I've really enjoyed preaching through the Gospel of John. It's one of, if not the most amazing books in the Bible, and perhaps the coolest thing about the Gospel of John is that you can read it as a brand new Christian or even as a non-Christian, and it makes sense. It is simple. It doesn't mean it's easy, but it's simple. It's understandable. But then you can come back to the book after having been a Christian for years and years, and it's deep and rich, and there are things there that you never saw before, and somehow it has God's Word, it works at these multiple levels where there is a simplicity and a complexity at the same time. This morning, we're going to look at a story from John's Gospel, which on the surface seems very straightforward, and it is. But we want to put on our detective hats, and we want to dig beneath the surface. And this morning, it's going to be a little less of a sermon and more of a teaching as we try to piece together some clues to see at a deeper level how God is connecting various ideas and themes and how He is an amazing God who is in the details of everything, working out His plan in accordance with His will. So if you have your Bible, would you turn to the book of John chapter 21? John chapter 21, it's page 769 in the Bibles the church provides. There should be one either in the rack in front of you or underneath your seat. We'd love it if you would turn to page 769 and follow along with us as we look at this story. John 21, I'm going to read verses 1 to 14. It says, Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. And they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Zero. Zilch. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it's the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off, and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you've just caught. Simon Peter climbed aboard and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153. But even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come, have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? 
They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. Now, at face value, this is a sort of cool miracle. You got some fishermen who go out at night. They've not caught anything. Jesus, who is resurrected, appears to them, tells them, throw your net on the other side of the boat, and there's a huge catch of fish. That's cool. That's great. That's, that's wonderful. But there's something about this story that makes us go, huh, wait a second. First of all, it says that this was the third time he appeared to them after the resurrection. It also is his last appearance, according to the Gospel of John, before he ascends into heaven. And the question is, well, is this the thing he wants to leave them with? I mean, granted, it's a cool miracle, but the very last time he appears to them, this is the miracle? It makes you think there should be something more here. There should be something deeper. After all, in John's Gospels, miracles have been very important. He's actually called them signs. There have been seven of them, and they have increased in importance all the way up to the resurrection, which is by far the most important and the biggest one. Now, this one's cool, but it doesn't quite match up to the miraculous nature of what happened in those other signs. And we say to ourselves, in all those other signs, there were non-believers present, and the purpose of the miracle was so that they would come to faith. But here, in John 21, there are no non-believers present. The only people who experience what goes on are the disciples, these seven guys who are there. So is there something more that's going on in this story other than the fact that Jesus has helped some fishermen catch fish when they were unable to do so on their own? There's a second thing about this story that is intriguing and raises some questions. And that is the specific number of fish that are caught is given. It says in verse number 11 that they caught 153 fish. Now, this is unusual for a number of reasons. First, it's a very precise number. This is not a rounded off number. It doesn't say well, they caught about 100 fish or 150 some fish or lots and lots of fish. It's a very precise, non-rounded off number, 153. It's also an interesting number. 153 is known as a triangular number, which for people in the ancient world, they found this stuff fascinating. And so 153 was different than 152 or 154 because it had special mathematical properties. Now, what I mean by that is if you consider, for example, today, the number 144. 
This has special mathematical properties. It's different than 143 or 145 because it's what's known as a square number. The ancients were very interested in geom geometry and its relation to numbers. And what a square number is, is if you take a number like 144 and you plot out a dot for each occurrence, each number, you end up with a perfect square with 12 dots on each side. This is why we say that 144 is the square of 12, or 12 is the square root of 144. Now there's not a lot of numbers like this that have this kind of cool mathematical nature to them, and the ancients paid close attention, not only to squares, but also to what they called triangular numbers. And a triangular number works in a similar way. If you put a dot down for each number, in a triangular number, you end up with an equilateral triangle. 153 is a triangular number. It's the triangle of 17, meaning that there are 17 dots along each side of the triangle in that picture. Now, these numbers are rare. They don't, not every one of them. 152 is not a triangle. 154 is not a triangle. So 153, when you hear that number in the ancient world, that immediately caused you to think, wait a second. That's a number that seems to have some special properties to it. And we know that John, the author of this story that we just read, has an interest in triangular numbers because he makes a big deal out of another triangular number in another book that he wrote. It's the book of Revelation, and the triangular number is 666. These numbers were rare. They show up only so often in the sequence. And so when we hear the number 153, it's another reason to say, huh, wait a second, that's an interesting number. Finally, the reason why verse 11 is so strange is because in the ancient world, fishermen didn't count their fish. Not like today where we say, yeah, I caught one. It was about that big. And tell exactly how many fish we caught. In the ancient world, they didn't go through and number them. They didn't go through and count them. There are lots of fishing stories in the Bible. Do you know another one where the number of fish caught is given? There isn't. This is the only place in the Bible where we actually have the exact number of fish given. That's strange. That's unusual. So all of this makes us think, okay, we've got this very unusual feature, this 153 fish. And this is the last miracle Jesus does, according to the Gospel of John, before he ascends to heaven. Two clues that something deeper is going on here than just the fact that Jesus is trying to help some fishermen get some fish. So how are we going to figure out what it is that's going on here? Well, in John's Gospel, much of the deeper things he's talking about are drawn out of the Old Testament. They have the Old Testament as their background. So, what passage in the Old Testament 
could possibly be informing what's going on in John 21. Well, the miracle in John 21 is that you've got some fishermen who catch an abundance of fish in their nets. If we were to look for something in the Old Testament that would have those features, we would find that in the Old Testament there are only three places where the word fisherman appears. There's only three times in the Old Testament that the word fisherman appears. Of those three, there's only one where the word fisherman appears in connection with an abundance of fish. It's in Ezekiel chapter 47. So if you have your Bible, would you turn back to Ezekiel chapter 47? It's page 623. Ezekiel chapter 47, I'm going to read verses 1 through 10. We're turning back into the Old Testament before the time of Christ, and this is a prophecy that a man named Ezekiel is given, and in the chapter we're looking at, he's in the middle of a vision. And there is some sort of angelic guide that's walking him through a vision. We pick it up in verse number one. Ezekiel says, the man, his guide, brought me back to the entrance of the temple. So they're in Jerusalem, but it's in a futuristic vision. And I saw water coming out from under the threshold of the temple toward the east, for the temple faced east. The water was coming down from under the south side of the temple, south of the altar. He then brought me out through the north gate and led me around the outside to the outer gate facing east, and the water was flowing from the south side. As the man went eastward with a measuring line in his hand, he measured above a thousand cubits, or about 450 meters. He then led me through water that was ankle deep. He then goes another 450 meters or so, and now the water is knee deep. He measured off another thousand cubits and led me through water that's now up to his waist. He measured off another thousand, but now it was a river that I could not cross because the water had risen and was deep enough to swim in, a river that no one could cross. He asked me, son of man, do you see this? Then he led me back to the bank of the river. When I arrived there, I saw a great number of trees on each side of the river. He said to me, this water flows toward the eastern region and goes down into the Arabah where it enters the Dead Sea. When it empties into the sea, the Dead Sea, the water there becomes fresh. Swarms of living creatures will live wherever the river flows, and there will be large numbers of what? Fish, because this water flows there and makes the salt water fresh. So where the river flows, 
everything will live. Fishermen will stand along the shore from En Gedi to En Aglaim. There will be places for spreading nets. The fish will be of many kinds, like the fish of the great sea. So here in this vision of the future, we have Ezekiel, who is in the city of Jerusalem. And you can see Jerusalem. It's in sort of the upper left-hand corner of that map. And in this vision, he has a sight of a miraculous flow of water flowing from the temple in Jerusalem eastward towards the Dead Sea. Now, the miraculous nature of this river is that it starts as a very small stream or trickle, and it keeps getting bigger and bigger until it becomes a mighty river. But Jerusalem is in the desert. You can see that by the fact that it's all brown where Jerusalem is and not green and blue. It's in the desert. More than that, Jerusalem is 2,500 feet above sea level. There are no rivers in Jerusalem today. There were no rivers in Jerusalem back then. There are no water sources from which you could have a river. There are no tributaries which could feed into a small stream, causing it to grow into a giant river. This is indeed a miraculous event, and Ezekiel is watching it, and the guide is telling him, look, the river is important. Pay attention. See what's going on here. It flows from Jerusalem into the Dead Sea. Now, the Dead Sea is called the Dead Sea because there's nothing living in it. That's why it's called the Dead Sea. It has the highest salt content of any body of water in the world. It's about 33% salt. Compare that to other bodies of water, which are somewhere around 4 or 5 or 6% salt. In the Dead Sea, there's so much salt that nothing can live there. There are no fish in the Dead Sea today. There is nothing alive in the Dead Sea. But here in this miraculous vision, water flowing from Jerusalem comes into the Dead Sea, and the miracle is, is that it makes the dead see alive. And what's the sign that there's now life in the Dead Sea? Fish. That where there were no fish before, now there are all sorts of fish. They're all over the place. And the miracle is, instead of the Dead Sea contaminating the fresh water coming from Jerusalem, instead the water from Jerusalem makes the Dead Sea alive. And there are fish. And then in verse 11 it says, in the vision, verse 10, sorry, fishermen will stand along the shore, and he names two places, En Gedi and En Iglaim. Now we know where En Gedi is. We're not sure where En Iglaim is, but it's interesting that he mentions these two places by name. Now, the really fascinating part is if you understand that in ancient Hebrew, there was a system by which place names were equated with numbers, that a number could stand for a place name. This was a sort of shorthand system or a way of referring 
to certain places using their numerical signature. It just so happens that in Hebrew, Engedi, the number that corresponds to Engedi, is 17. That's its numerical signature. That's the number that represents Engedi. And it just so happens, not coincidentally, that the number that corresponds to Eniglaim is 153. That's its numerical signature. The Hebrew letters in Engedi correspond to the number 17. The numbers in Eniglaim correspond to 153, which is 17's triangle and the number that shows up in John chapter 21. So here we have a passage of Scripture, which is the only passage in the Old Testament in which you have the word fisherman and the idea of the abundance of fish, which also has some connection to 17 and its triangular number 153. All of this makes us think that there is something from Ezekiel 47 that is informing what's going on in John chapter 21. So, if we can unlock the mystery of Ezekiel 47, then we'll better understand the purpose for which Jesus is doing this miracle in John chapter 21. So let me ask you a couple questions about Ezekiel 47. What do you think you would call water that when it flows into the Dead Sea makes it alive? What would you label water like that? Living water. That makes sense. I mean, it's fresh water. But in Ezekiel 47, the emphasis on the fact that it creates life, that while the Dead Sea is dead, living water makes it alive. In fact, it is explicitly called this in another prophecy that refers to this exact same event. In Zechariah 14, Zechariah is talking about what Ezekiel's talking about. He also is predicting the future. He says, on that day, living water will flow out of Jerusalem, half to the Dead Sea and half to the Mediterranean Sea, in summer and in winter. Now Ezekiel's only picked up the eastern half of what's happening. He's talking about the water that flows from Jerusalem just to the Dead Sea. Zechariah tells us the title for that water is living water, which will flow making things alive. Second question is according to Ezekiel 47, where does the living water come from? Jerusalem, and specifically where in Jerusalem? The temple, and if we're going to be really precise, where in the temple does the water start? At the altar. Look in verse number one. The water was coming down from under the south side of the temple south of the altar. Now the altar is where the sacrifices were made in the temple. That's where the little tiny stream of water gets its start. It then, Ezekiel says, 
flows out the south side of the temple and then heads towards the Dead Sea. Now the words in Hebrew, south side, are very interesting because they're not normally applied to a building. When you apply them to a building, they do mean the south side of the building. But literally, these words are usually applied to a body, an animal body or a human body. When they're applied to a body, or more literally, what they mean is the right shoulder. South side is literally the right shoulder, so that Ezekiel 47, 1, if we translated it literally, would say, the water was coming from under the right shoulder of the temple, south of the altar. So, here's what we have in Ezekiel. In Ezekiel, the picture that we are given is that there is an abundance of fish because of a river of living water flowing from under the right shoulder of the temple. That's Ezekiel's point. Now, what does this have to do with John's gospel? Well, let's move now from Ezekiel 47 into John's gospel. In John's gospel, let me ask you this question. Who is the source of living water? Jesus. We looked at this in John chapter 4 when Jesus was having a conversation with the Samaritan woman. He said to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Jesus says, I have living water to give. And remember John chapter 7. Jesus says in the middle of the Feast of Tabernacles, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Because whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, rivers or streams of living water will flow from within him. According to John's gospel, Jesus is the source of living water. He is the fountain who is a king, that from him is the flow of living water. Now, in John's gospel, who's the new temple? This also is Jesus. Remember what Jesus said in John chapter 2, standing in the temple precinct. He says to the Jewish leaders, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. The Jews think he's talking about the building. So they say to him, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. You're going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. You see, according to John, the temple is where you find God. Well, according to John, Jesus is where God is incarnate on the earth. And so when he was walking around on the earth, if you wanted to find God's presence, it was in Jesus' body that he is the temple of the living God. So that begs the question, in John's gospel, where do we find water flowing from under the right shoulder of the temple? 
in John 19, John says that after Jesus was crucified, that the normal procedure was you go around and you break everybody's legs to make sure they're dead. However, when they got to Jesus, they noticed he was already dead. And so while the three other gospel writers don't tell us about this, John says they did something peculiar. Instead of breaking his legs, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. Now this is highly unusual. You would expect that a person who is pierced would have just blood that comes out their side. To confirm this, I called my favorite hematologist this week and asked him, David, what would you expect when someone was pierced on their side? He said you would expect only blood. This is why John goes to great lengths in the middle of his story to interrupt the story and say, the man who saw it, what? The flow of water. The man who saw it has given testimony, and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth, and he testifies so that you will believe. John thinks nobody's going to think that water and blood came out of his side, but I saw it. And what happened on the crucifixion is, is that a flow of water came out of Jesus' side. Now, John doesn't tell us which side of Jesus' body was pierced. However, we have a very old tradition and some ancient documents to back it up that hold that Jesus was pierced on his right side, just under his right shoulder. In fact, if you look at any classical painting of the, of the crucifixion, I have one up on the screen, you will notice something interesting. He's always pierced on the right side. It's consistent from painting to painting to painting. And that's because there is an ancient tradition that says it was his right side that was pierced. And out of that right side came a flow of water. So what does this all have to do with John chapter 21? Well, the reason that Jesus does this miracle is not simply because he wants to help some fishermen catch some fish. This is a fulfillment of a picture that was given long ago. You see, in reality, the Dead Sea is the world in which we live, in which nothing can live because of the conditions of sin and death in this world that there is death all around. But in the midst of death, God did something miraculous, something that starts at the altar of sacrifice in the temple, a, a river of water flowing from that place out to the Dead Sea, making things that were once dead alive. John's trying to say the fulfillment of that comes in part through Jesus. He's the new temple. He's the source of living water. And at the moment of his sacrifice, he was pierced. And there started a flow of living water. 
And that living water is growing into a mighty river. And what's the sign that the water is making things alive? It's that there's fish. And that fishermen will stand along the shore and they will cast their nets and bring in more fish than anyone could have possibly imagined. You see, in Matthew's gospel, right before Jesus ascends to heaven, he explicitly commands his disciples, go and make disciples of all nations. In John's gospel, he says it with a picture. The disciples are out in their boat. On their own power, they've caught nothing. But when the resurrected Jesus shows up, and by the word of his testimony, when they obey him, they gather in all the fish that he has created because he has life in himself. Remember, the disciples were first called to follow Jesus. He said to them, I will make you fishers of men. John 21 is the fulfillment of that. It is this picture that Jesus is sending his disciples out into the world to gather in all the new life that's now possible because of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. See, at one level, John 21 works as a very simple story. Jesus has the power to know where the fish are. But at a deeper level, it's a sign. It's a sign that you and I are being commissioned by God to go into this Dead Sea world and to gather in the new fish that Jesus, through his life-giving sacrifice, is creating. So many fish that they can barely bring them in. Now, there's one other picture that God has given us besides John 21 to remind us of this beautiful truth. It's a ceremony connected to these same themes of water, death, life, and it's the ceremony of baptism. Because in baptism, in the living water, we proclaim that those who were once dead are buried with Christ in his death and raised to new life. And so this morning, the climax of our service is we celebrate in the waters of baptism the fact that God is still fulfilling John 21 and making the dead alive. And our job as a church is to bring them in.